Dear listener, you are now listening to Black Box Theater Podcast, a podcast where we give the microphone to artists who in one way or the other are connected to the theater. During Oslo Internationale Teaterfestival 2021, we are releasing our Black Box Theater publication number six, and besides being a physical book, the five contributions in the publication are made listenable in this podcast series. Each contribution will be released as an episode of the podcast. While listening to the podcast, you can also have a look in the book and the illustrations in it at blackbox.no. In the publication, we invited eight contributors to give us insight in their own ways into their artistic practice, personal stories and current public debates. Each of the contributors helped to enlighten us and pick our curiosity so that we hopefully can think in new directions. You are now about to listen to these people read and talk about their own contributions. Every second day during the festival, a new episode will be released. In this episode of Black Box Theater Podcast, you will hear a conversation between Michelle Tistel and Jessica Lauren Elizabeth Taylor. The conversation is called Aligned and Maligned, a history I didn't live but has parallels to one that I did, and revolve around self-identification and identity politics. The term identity politics is used and misused and carries different connotations depending on who is using it and in which context it is being used. Why is this term dividing? Which perspectives should be voiced? We invited Michelle Tistel, who then suggested answering these questions through an ongoing conversation with Jessica Lauren Elizabeth Taylor, a dialogue you are about to listen to. Aligned and Maligned, a history I didn't live, but has parallels to one that I did. A memory. Setting, Texas. Interior living room. Sounds from the television playing from the 4x4 relay race and the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. Little Michelle. Why are there four teams from the United States? Grandpa. What do you mean four teams? Little Michelle. Look at all those black people. We can't have four teams. Grandpa. Those are not all U.S. teams. That's this country. That's this country. Little Michelle, in all. Are we everywhere? Grandpa. Yes, baby. We're in all those places. Little Michelle. So you mean there's a me in all of those places? Michelle, to audience. In that moment, I became aware of the African diaspora. I wondered, how do the other Michelles experience life and being in their parallel realities? Introduction. Jessica Lauren Elizabeth Taylor is patient, funny, wise, and curious. She stays open but leaves nothing to chance. I met Jessica, also called Jaylet through the program Had Odad, 
here and there. Mentor program that the art organization Transcultural Arts Production sponsors. The mentor program pairs artists who are new to Norway with established artists. Jessica is an artist, filmmaker, and community organizer. Like me, she has roots in the southern United States. Before moving back to Norway with her young family, she worked in Berlin, where she produced the Black in Berlin Salon. Immediately, I found her diasporic perspective compelling and relevant as a meta-analytical practice for engaging art communities and spaces of meaning-making. Jessica effectively created contact zone situations between art institutions and diasporic audiences in Berlin. Similarly, Jessica's film project, Muterderda, addresses heritage and gender in a diasporic context. When we meet, our conversations often return to the intersection of art, cultural policy, and everyday life politics. Indirectly, many of our conversations have probed situations and aspects of daily life that require tools for correcting, disrupting, and exposing harmful practices, challenges to one's integrity, episodes of injustice, and abuse of power. I'm very fortunate that our paths have crossed. Michelle Antoinette Tisdell embodies the definition of a Renaissance woman. As a social anthropologist and researcher at the National Bibliothèque, Michelle has cultivated a career spanning 25 plus years that investigates not only how people live within different societies, but what makes their lives meaningful and the subsequent impact on history. Michelle's work as a political, social, and cultural critic and writer is particularly inspiring to me. Her unwavering desire to interrogate histories and make space for forgotten histories connects her practice with mine. As Black American mothers, we also share and connect with a long line of cultural workers who have chosen lives outside of their home country in order to gain personal freedom. Over the past few months, our relationship has grown from mentor to collaborator to friend. This text is an extension of our ongoing conversation about diasporic heritage, identity, and the politics of experience in everyday life. Our discussion begins with a question about the colonial legacy of race and blackness, then explores understandings of identity politics, diaspora, and belonging. Other important topics are signaling and unlearning, issues that have shaped, misshaped, provoked, and galvanized us. These are relevant topics for communities in both the U.S. and Norway, where understandings of diaspora, much like individual and group identity, are varied and fluid. Moreover, we explore how personal history and individual experience inform notions of heritage and diaspora. Our respective journeys in the African diaspora begin in different parts of the Southern United States and different decades. Nevertheless, they have led us to Oslo and the following conversation, a meta-narrative about blackness, belonging, and identity at what feels like a critical moment for social and individual responsibility. The following text represents our most lucid moments. Anchoring, colonial history and its effects on modern day identity politics. Franz Fanon. When the Negro makes contact with the white world, a certain sensitizing action takes place. If his psychic structure is weak and observes a collapse of the ego, 
The black man stops behaving as an actual person. The goal of his behavior will be the other in the guise of the white man, for the other alone can give him worth. In the collective unconscious, black equals ugliness, sin, darkness, immorality. In other words, he is Negro who is immoral. If I order my life like that of a moral man, I simply am not a Negro, end quote. Kamala Makarel. Europeans decided that Africans were too brute and aggressive to control their countries, were therefore uncivilized and needed to be colonized. And Asians were too effeminate and weak to control their countries, were therefore uncivilized and needed to be colonized. But who defines civilized? Who defines the right way to act? End quote. So, is there a purpose or a power with connecting to a collective identity as an anti-racism strategy, or for example, all black spaces, or are individual identities more impactful? Identity politics can be at play internally. Well, it can be at play in different ways. So I say internally and already I'm constructing a group. There are so many different so-called groups. The notion of group in itself is just a metaphor. A so-called group is constructed through people identifying with shared origins, narratives, and experiences. The notion of how a social formation emerges and becomes relevant needs to be reconsidered. The group itself is created through identification. Individuals choose, in given situations, to relate to each other and ascribe to narratives that resonate with their past experience or vision of the future. If we think of groups as fluid, then the tension of feeling that you have to commit to one idea or one position that you're locked into or can't have nuances based on experiences as a woman or someone who doesn't conform to traditional norms uh, or notions of sexuality or gender identity dissipates. Sometimes people forget that identity and groups are not fixed. Individuals identify with multiple narratives and social formations simultaneously. I can adopt and appropriate a history that maybe I didn't live, but that has parallels to one that I did live. Knowingly or unknowingly, we construct it through association and through affinity with another collective of people with which one shares something or with or wants to share something. But is it important to put that affinity aside for the greater good? I know a lot of people struggle to identify with this all-encompassing identity black. So by individual identities, I mean specifying African-American, Afro-Norwegian, etc. I have always felt at home in a black, a global black identity. Growing up in Florida, moving to Boston doesn't seem like a very strange difference to some people, but if you're American, you know that being Southern black and Northern black or East Coast West Coast or Midwest, that is all very, very different. I learned that when I moved from Florida to Boston to go to school and then moving to Berlin and meeting a completely new African diaspora and now moving to Scandinavia, but I still have always felt very rooted in a global blackness, although some people feel uncomfortable with that idea because that blackness has been ascribed to us. Centuries ago, when our ancestors were violently removed, wiped out, and delegated by Europeans into different countries, they put borders in place without 
any consideration for the tribal states that already existed. And the tribes were all very, very distinctive and varied and had different languages, customs, traditions, and even different heritages, gods and goddesses. And now to distill that into blackness for some people feels diluted and therefore irrelevant. But I purport that there is a power in the global blackness because the entire African diaspora at some point has been colonized and it is powerful to commit to a group identity. As African-Americans, we don't have that uninterrupted anchoring. Instead, we use a, a patchwork or a collage approach. We have to invent, imagine, reconstruct, and reassemble notions of heritage and belonging. As I moved farther and farther from my point of origin, my experience of blackness expanded. It's recalibrating, learning the new landscape, symbolism, meanings. You just add that to your experience bank. Sometimes blackness can seem different in, in environments, uh, localities, societies where the black population is different from my origins. Uh, that's what happened when I moved from my grandmother's segregated neighborhood in Houston to campus life at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts and eventually to Norway. In Norway, when most people see a black person, they have a different point of reference than in the U.S. This was my experience in the 1990s. Before you open your mouth, you're just exhibit A. However, you are matter out of place, as anthropologist Mary Douglas would say. You are an other. And the question is, which kind of other? And when you speak, you're American, and suddenly that's okay. And then being black American is cool. That was really uncomfortable for me. What if I wasn't from the States? Would I suddenly not be okay? So that made me interested in the experiences of my peers in Norway. Unlearning. How does that effort live in the body on a cellular level? As a student of Sarah Ahmed, I have to acknowledge the continual learning and unlearning. I love that she writes about unlearning habits and patterns that have been passed on from generations of forced assimilation into white culture. I've been working on unlearning in a corporal sense. When I used to go into shops in Berlin or grocery stores, I would make sure to take off my hoodie, take my hands out of my pockets, be respectable. But now, because I practice unlearning, I do the opposite, resist those stereotypes forced onto me. Also, it's vital that I start to relearn the rituals and practices that are a part of my herstory. And I think this speaks to a lot, uh, to destruction of identity. These learned ideas and behaviors have negative consequences and are fraught with contradictions. The subtle ways that differences are communicated are historical. These discourses can start early. Often it starts in the family, or that a kid is different than her peers. I was often accused of being too white. I didn't perceive it as malicious in the family. I was uncomfortable, but I learned not to take offense. It was unsettling to be labeled as different from my family. So when we talk about unlearning, it goes very deep. The role of difference in the way that we talk about identity is often learned in our families and is part of our communities. The phenomenon of passing, pretending to be, to be white while hiding African-American heritage, was an important survival strategy for many black and even Latino communities in the US. We know colorism exists. We have colorism on the one hand, and on the other hand, a discourse of being too white. There's a tension in it 
just like there's a tension in being able to pass, uh, there's a tension in the choice to be aligned or unaligned with a group or identity. Others might attempt to malign the chosen identity and your decision to align with it. How and in which context does ascribing to a certain association signal that you are more or less loyal? There's so many associations, stereotypes, and stigmas that fuel contradictions about belonging. These are reflections of the society's practices and environments that we perpetuate. Mm. And I don't want to distance myself from that. Now my main focus of unlearning is language and speech, written and spoken. Growing up, I too was called Oreo and told I was acting white. And there was a constant code switching between AAV, African-American vernacular English, and so-called standard English. Moving to Boston and going to proper theater school, I was told that my language was incorrect and I had my natural language beaten out of me. Later, moving further into academia, my vernacular was unacademic. So now my unlearning task is speaking my natural dialect, both at home and in lecture spaces. I often talk about Beyonce and when she stopped doing interviews because people kept telling her she was ignorant simply due to her thick Texan accent. How dehumanizing can that be? Signaling. Claim as many labels, identities, descriptions, and experiences that are relevant to you. We don't need to assimilate in order to integrate. And even now, I'm starting to think that integration is not a goal either. My goal is to participate, but on my own terms. Because you grow up knowing that there's no blending in or fitting in, so code switching becomes a necessity. My efforts in Norway have all been about securing the best future possible for my son. What do my actions signal to him? I can't encourage him to seize opportunities if I am not bold. He doesn't need me to assimilate. He needs me to stand my ground. Hmm. But even participating sometimes feels like a step too far. If I participate in a machine that is anti-black at its core, transphobic at its core, ableist at its core, which is essentially all major arts and cultural institutions, then what am I participating in? A lot of my sheroes are people who actively participate. Stacey Abrams, people who move the needle forward an inch, and also people who didn't participate. Angela Davis, Zora Neale Hurston, and Audre Lorde, who famously said, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at its own his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Okay, Angela Davis ended up participating. She became a professor at the University of California, Davis. Mm. She's a critic. To be a critic and a dissenter is to participate. Dissenting is participating. Zora Neale Hurston died impoverished, alone, and unknown. Bless her. Mm. She didn't deserve that. I would have loved for her to be celebrated and to have experienced how we revere her, how loved and treasured she is. A lot of artists don't get to experience that. She experienced the tensions within her community. Mm. There has to be differing opinions and robust debates. 
there's no other way for us to exist. If we're going to deconstruct something, we have to deconstruct the notion that group identity means group consensus. This is one of the misconceptions about identity politics. There is no consensus within groups. Show me a group with 100% consensus, and I will show you the suppression of thought and freedom of expression. Ironically, critics of identity politics often misuse and exploit the lack of consensus within a so-called group. The same detractors malign solidarity and the use of group identities as a strategy to gain political power. In her article in Oxford Bibliographies, my, my dear friend Vasiliki Neofotistos at the University of Buffalo defines identi identity politics as the deployment of the category of identity as a tool to frame political claims, promote political ideologies, or stimulate and orientate social and political action, usually in a larger context of inequality or injustice, and with the aim of asserting group distinctiveness and belonging and gaining power and recognition. Additionally, Identity politics refers to tensions and struggles over the right to map and define the contours and fixed essence of specific groups. The phrase has become increasingly common in political anthropology since the second half of the 20th century, with the emergence of a wide diversity of social movements, including the women's movement, the African-American civil rights movement, and the gay and lesbian movement, as well as nationalist and post-colonial movements. It's so important to compare the academic def definition to different, the different uses of the concept in everyday life. How can we observe identity politics in practice? We have to keep the actual circumstances and context of different practices in mind. It's important to scrutinize the motives of those who criticize so-called identity politics. Often they are misusing the term and actually criticizing legitimate claims to the mobilization of solidarity and definitional power by the underrepresented. Identity politics is a strategy, a tool for influencing power relations and historical representation. History and being represented or excluded from history is a function and mechanism of power, as Michelle Rolf Trio tells us. Yes, it's important that we return to the original use of the term and also name who coined it because it is so widely misused. The Comahee River Collective was a black feminist lesbian social organization active in Boston from 1974 to 1980. Founding member Barbara Smith writes, by identity politics, we meant that black women have a right to formulate our own political agendas based upon the material conditions we face as a result of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Unfortunately, the term has been maligned and distorted ever since. Their manifesto of the Comahee River Collective is one of my personal guidebooks in which it, say, it states, we believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of their, our own identity, as opposed to working to end someone else's oppression. In the case of black women, this is a particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. Hmm. 
Yes, identity politics is a strategy for self-empowerment based on collective narratives of experience and shared affinity. Empowerment is the most in misunderstood colonial notion. You cannot empower other people. I am the only person who can empower myself. You can, however, check your own practices so that you are not a hindrance to me. Hmm. Today, people criticize identity politics in the United States and Norway to diminish the claims of racialization and disparity. Criticizing identity politics has become a strategy, strategy to delegitimize groups that have been disparaged and dis disadvantaged. So I choose the phrase of the politics of experience as an alternative to identity politics for that reason. Individual experiences are often facts and information that we use to validate, corroborate, or legitimate other people's claims. Collective narratives and actions are compelling. People are saying, me too, yes, this is real. That happened to my mother, in my community, in my football club. If enough of these facts are measured, it becomes part of the public record and historical information. History is two phenomena, events and social processes unfolding and narratives constructed and told about the unfolding of events and social processes. Identity politi politics mobilizes both kinds of history. Maybe identity politics is part of our heritage. Our ancestors' contribution to the world economy is indisputable. The wealth that the transatlantic slave trade and slave economies generated made possible many aspects of life that we enjoy in Europe and the U.S. today. Th that fact irritates a lot of people. This is important for understanding what kind of effort is actually required to dismantle systemic racism and oppression, to create some semblance of equity Inequality. You heard Michelle Tistel and Jessica Lauren Elizabeth Taylor read Aligned and Maligned, a history I didn't live but has parallels to one that I did. A text from Black Box Theater publication number six. To you who have listened, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate feedback, so feel free to send us a message or use our hashtag BBT podcast in social media. Stay tuned for the next episode of Black Box Theater Podcast, where you will hear Eivind Haugland read about not leaving reality in peace. <laughs>